So it's book of John, first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And then we go to verse 14. The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then we go on to verse 43. The next day, that is the day after Jesus called Andrew and Peter, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is the end of the reading. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Um, let me just pray. Father, I ask as we begin to look through these encounters in John's Gospel, would you give each one of us a fresh revelation of your goodness, your glory, your truth, that we would see Jesus and see Jesus afresh in each one of our lives, that you would change us and you would transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Well, actually, one of the things I take uh, solace from this morning is when Brian says that he goes downstairs, as he said last week, and goes down and just recognises a face of people he doesn't know. How long have you been in the church, Brian? 1970s. 1970s. So, 1970s. so I've only been here three or four weeks, so you'll forgive me if I don't know your faces so well. But it is a reminder, actually, and this is one of the things I feel, is if you, are, if you don't know somebody, you have permission over the next uh, week, month, two months, say, just remind me what your name is. You may have chatted to that person for the last four years, uh, but actually, knowing each other's names, and it's very easy to forget them, but it's a great way to get to know. So don't, don't be shy, don't stand off. I'm going to do it to you, just so you know. Just remind me who you are. Uh, so please do feel free to do that with others too. <clears throat> I don't know what kind of week you've had. Uh, it's funny, isn't it, how uh, you end up with uh, finding hope in funny places. 
not in the places you expect. So um, some of you who are regular shoppers, and it's great that Stelle was able to talk about working in, uh, in Morrison's this week, because I don't know whether you've noticed that there's a lot less greenery in the supermarkets this week. So they're short of lettuce because of the, the weather in Spain, of green vegetables. Frankly, that makes no difference to my diet, I just would like to tell you this. So for, I'm sorry if you're a big vegetable person, your life has been ruined this week, but for me, uh, actually, it's been a blessing. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at John 17 in John's Gospel. And taking a little bit of time, we could talk about lots of things there, but I looked about three things from John chapter 17. That as a church, as God's people in this place, we are God-centered. We don't live for ourselves, but we live for God's glory. We then follow that by looking at what is the shape of our lives together, but also of our personal life. And what we know and what we see in Scripture, and also we see over history, God is a God of love. God loves you. God loves you. Oh, I'm repeating my sermon from two weeks ago, but God loves you. Do you know that? God loves you. And we're called to take that love to others. But actually we're here to share the good news that we've received. I recognise saying God loves you, loves you lots of times, doesn't necessarily change everything within your heart. But actually we do need, if we're struggling with that, to see a transformation in our lives. I still need it in some of my life, in some areas of my life. When I can sit there and say, does God really love me? You may wonder why that is so important. What are those, some of those things are so important? And we're going to spend the rest between now and Easter continuing to stay in John's Gospel. John's Gospel is famous for some of the encounters between Jesus and either individuals or a whole range of people. But if you want to understand a little bit why it's so important to understand, for example, that God loves you, <clears throat> as it's captured a little bit in this quote by a famous writer and Christian theologian, if you move it on, James, um, some of you have heard of A.W. Tozer. It's a bit of a long quote, but stay with me when you hear it. It says this, it says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base, that's bad, as the worshipper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And what someone in his deep heart conceives God to be like. I found this in my own life, but this is also true. Tozer says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. If you think God is a grumpy God and constantly displeased with you, you will move towards that image of God. If you think God is a God of love, you will move towards that image. And he then said this, this is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message 
is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at God. We're going to look at the person of Jesus, God's Son, in the Gospel, and say, what is God like? What do we see in the person of Jesus in these encounters that Jesus wasn't just, when we think about God, we can just think of God sort of up there, but when we look at Jesus, we see a living, breathing human being relating to those around him. He encounters all sorts of people, all sorts of people from different parts of life, from different traditions, in different groups. A whole variety of people, people who are very successful, people who have no success, who are completely broken. People who are highly intellectual, and people have no qualifications whatsoever. And what we see in that is a subtlety, but also we see the character and nature of God in that. But in this character, it's very rich. Those of you who know your Bible will know, particularly that John's Gospel um, is, looks very different to the account of Jesus' life from Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And there's a subtlety and a depth in John's Gospel that's slightly different from some of the other accounts that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In these accounts, what we see is, is that Jesus answers some of the fundamental questions about life, some of the big questions of life. What are we here for? What's life about? What's wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? What are we going to do about it? Can we do anything about it? Or is it just chance? The dice are cast and we live with it. And what role do we have to play if it isn't just like that? And then when we look at Jesus, we'll see in his character, see in his message, see in his person over these next nine weeks what Jesus is like. I don't know about you, but when I, I was chatting to some people this week who have nothing to do with the church, and it's quite interesting to see when you start to tease out with people and say, what is it you think life is really about? Probably commonly, I'm not saying this is of everybody, but commonly would say, well... I'm just going to try and live as good life as possible. I'm going to work hard, I'm going to do the best I can, and then I'll die. It's a, it's a kind of attitude and approach that we find many times. But for a Christian, this fatalistic, in many ways, approach to life means that true joy, true freedom, true love, aren't ever found. And that's what the Christian promise and the Christian life point us towards. You see, many people, and, and actually it's very interesting today with all the kind of political conversations with Donald Trump going on, we're living in quite a different time to the season we've lived in over the last 10 years. But it's very easy to look at our world, particularly the Western world, and sit and see there are many values in our society that we could describe and say are quite Christian. And if we look through church history and we look through history generally, you know, it wasn't very popular, for example, to love your enemies. The concept of loving your enemies, of reaching out to those who weren't like you, even those who are against you, is actually something that's come into society through Christians, through the church. The idea of caring for the poor, 
the needy, the broken, the sick, the diseased, and actually going to the right place of darkness was first predominantly through Christians. The pervading cultures at the time often said the weak, it's all evolution, the big, the strong, eat the weak, that's life. But the gospel of Jesus Christ does not say that. It does not say that life is just a competition, that the strong, the successful win. The gospel says something quite different. John begins uh, his gospel account. James, I might be a bit erratic on when I tell you to move on the slides, so I apologise if I'm not very clear on that. But we're looking at this life, this encounter between Jesus and Nathaniel. And before that, though, we had read the beginning of John's Gospel, where Jesus is described as the Word. The Greek word there is logos. Some of you may know that. Um, it's, it's the Word. And the reason that's important is this, is this, is that at the time, the predominant thought were the Greeks. And the Greeks believed that actually the way the world was made is it was a perfect moral order to this world. And that you needed to understand what the perfect moral order was. It was like a principle that governed the world. And the Greeks believed, and it's pervading uh, in the society at the time, if you could understand what the way the world works and the moral order of this world, and then you lived by it, you would live well. You could live a good life if you understand how the world works in this kind of philosophical way. So here, though, John, at the beginning of his Gospel, says that Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the Logos. And he's saying that Jesus is the purpose for this world. He's the reason in this world. The Bible affirms again and again that the, the purpose and meaning in world today isn't some ethical order, isn't some principle, isn't a set of laws. It's a person. It's a relationship. It's the person of Jesus Christ, the Logos. So to live well is not just about following a set of laws. It's about living in relationship to the creator of the world, to Jesus. And this relationship isn't built on your background, about how successful you are, your education, your wealth, your social status, your class, Actually, this relationship is open to all, to everybody. And it's here, John says, in this first encounter between Jesus and Nathaniel, Nathaniel was a student. Students weren't the students we know today who, you know, uh, went off to university and got lectured by people. But there are people who attached themselves to a teacher. And um, Nathaniel was attached to some teachers And they would be wondering who the Messiah was. Those kind of rabbis would be looking to say, who is the Messiah? Who is the person who's going to come and save us from our troubles and the things that are wrong in this world? But Nathaniel, we just move it on one, James. Nathaniel, you see, has one problem. Well, one main problem. Nathaniel considers himself superior to other people. Nathaniel has a superiority complex. He's prejudiced, he's bigoted, he's judgmental. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth, Nathaniel asks, as Philip invites him to meet and consider Jesus the Messiah. 
Would anybody from Nazareth really have the answers to the big questions of life? You do me a favor. That's not where the kind of people with the big questions to life will come from. My little map, uh, Nazareth is in the north. It was a very rural area compared to Jerusalem, which is seen as where the clever people, the educated people, the powerful people, the influential people lived. Jesus came from Nazareth. And I wonder whether you find that slightly characteristic of something you recognize maybe in yourself or maybe you recognize in the human race. That there tends to be a need that we like to look down on some other people. The wrong sort of people. So the people who don't come from our world or from our background or from our tracks. The real problem people, I mean, you know, could the Messiah come from Snow Hill? Or could the Messiah come from the Royal Crescent, from that privilege? Really? I wonder who it is you look down on. Who it is, because one of the things about looking down, one of the reasons it's a very human characteristic, is we like to look down on others and think they're the problem for the world, is it makes us feel better about ourselves. But the concept of being prejudiced, of feeling superior to others, is this, is that we love to look down and, and is this, if you have um, that sense of superiority to others, you will end up having a disdain for certain types of people. Could anything good come from Nazareth? And what you do is if you get superior, or if you think you're above other people, you stop listening, you stop hearing, you stop looking. Relationship experts, if you go and speak to marriage counsellors, um, and lots of books being written on this, one of the things they say that's absolutely toxic or a killer in a relationship is when people roll their eyes at the other person. Oh dear, a little bit of rustling. Because <laughs> what they say is that people who roll their eyes at other people, it's a sign of disdain. It's a sign of disdain. And what you do is you cut yourself off in relational terms. You stop believing that a relationship can grow because nothing good can come out of the person you disdain, surely. Many Christians, um, many people, sorry, who don't know Christianity today, and I wonder about the people in your life who don't know Jesus. But actually, I think it's quite common, really, for others to roll their eyes at Christianity today. I've sort of heard it before, haven't we? Christianity is not relevant. Jesus, heard a little bit about him, but they're just people who wander off to church. Could the saviour of the world really be living and breathing in those people? And people roll their eyes at us. But Jesus came from Nazareth. Jesus came from Nazareth. One of the things that uh, you see throughout Scripture is that God doesn't see things the way often we humans see things. We tend to think that what we need to do is we need to work hard, we need to meet the best of our own gifts, we need to be successful, and suddenly, somehow, that will make us worthy and acceptable to God. 
But throughout Scripture, what we find is Jesus choosing the unexpected people. We find God looking at situations and people in a very different way to which the world looks at people. But we see this classically in Jesus himself. That God, the immortal, awesome creator, transcendent God, should come to earth, make himself vulnerable, come in a stable, be born in Nazareth to a carpenter and a young woman. The savory world that comes to us from there. But that's what God does. Jesus does come from Nazareth to us. One of the things that uniquely you find in Christianity, as opposed to every other religion, pretty much, is this, is that most other religions or thoughts say, work hard, make the best of yourself, follow these laws, follow these rules, and you will finally get close to God. Christianity says this, you won't get there. However hard you work, you won't get there. Jesus has done it for you. Jesus has lived the life you were called to live and died the death so that you may have life and have it in its fullness. It's a gift that you need to receive rather than something you can earn. That gift is available to all who come, look and believe. If you move us on, James 1. But despite scoffing, we see Nathaniel has a spiritual need. A student does understand that, as you're a student, you think, well, there's a lot to learn in this world. So although he scoffs and looks in disdain, he moves towards, the, to, towards Jesus. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Nathaniel accepts Philip's invitation to come and see. To come and see. To look with his own eyes. To examine what he sees in Jesus. It comes to speak to Jesus himself. And once fun, fun, sort of one of the great things about Nathaniel, um, I think as well, is that you see a, a change, a very quick change in Nathaniel's life. He moves from disdain to belief in very quick order. And it's quite interesting if you look carefully at this exchange. If you're in your house group, have a look at it. It's what's going on right at the end of the passage that I'll refer you to. I wonder whether you think the people you spend your life with who don't know or wouldn't say are followers of Jesus think about God or about Jesus. Do you think in your work life, in your home, where you spend your leisure, that people in this world have some spiritual hunger, have a desire to know God or be known by God? Or do you think actually that they don't and actually they don't want to hear the message, they don't want to find truth? one of the things I think we are, Nathaniel does speak to us at, at this particular time. There is a lot of scepticism in the world that I used to live in when I was in the workplace, for example, in the NHS. You know, this Jesus, really? I've got lives to save. But actually in somewhere like Bath, as, I, as you look at your friends, alongside the beauty of a stunning city and a stunning place, with all sorts of things around you. There is also amazing spiritual 
hunger, but also brokenness. But do we believe God cares about that brokenness and can do something about it? So whatever your friends or the people you know are currently furiously pursuing, whether success, whether it's getting up the ladder, whether it's health, whether it's more relationships, whether it's their own pleasure, leisure, whatever it is that the people you know in your life are chasing, do you believe that Jesus may have an answer to their pursuit in life? All of them have hearts that are hungry that will only be truly satisfied by the Logos, the God in Jesus who came to bring real truth and bring satisfaction to the purpose of our lives that we are created for. Nathaniel came, saw, came and saw Jesus, and his life was changed. <coughs> his life was completely changed. Because he was amazed at what he found in Jesus. Jesus wasn't what he looked for, wasn't what he expected, but when he met him, it changed everything. Um, the famous British poet, I don't know whether some of you have heard of him, W.H. Auden, moved to uh, New York in 1939. Having abandoned his childhood faith, uh, he was brought up in the Church of England and was a regular churchgoer. Most of his friends, as someone who was part of the literary and the creative establishment, used to mock Christianity, didn't think it was relevant, didn't think it had anything to, to it. And, and Auden agreed with them, essentially, but he went over to, um, to the States. But after the World War II broke out, he had a massive change in his life. Because as he witnessed what was going on in Nazi Germany, as he saw humanity's contempt for our liberty, for freedom, for justice, by well-educated, highly artistic people, he couldn't understand that the problem of evil wasn't going to go away. And it brought him to his senses, because he obviously realised that, ultimately realised, there needed to be a God. If he believed there was right and wrong, life wasn't just a case of saying, I've got my version of the truth. The Nazis have got their versions of the truth. And it's just like a competition. If there was right and wrong, it's just a competition between competing ideologies. But he realised in the kind of brutality of what happened there, that logically there must be a God. If, we, if the values we cherish are right and are wrong, they do emanate from somewhere, from someone, and that person was God in Jesus. And he turned back to God to live for him. Auden was ultimately haunted by the fact that the right people of his time, the people who were considered to be the right people, of his time, laughed at Christianity. But that didn't mean it wasn't true. And it led him to come back, to see, to come to Jesus, to see and believe. Nathaniel was willing to look, to come and see. He opened himself up to Jesus and he believed. Maybe this morning, whatever challenges you're facing in life, you may say, Tim, I don't know whether I believe full stop. If that, maybe it's a moment where you need to come and see and put your trust in God. Or it also may be, if I just push it a little bit further than that, if you have been a Christian many years, 
in the challenges you're facing in your life? Are you prepared to come and give all your life in coming and seeing and trusting God to walk you through that? And finally, James, if you move us on. Jesus says two things to Nathaniel that change his life. He says this. He produced a response of faith in Nathaniel. <coughs> Jesus says that he's a man in which nothing is false. I mean, that's a great thing to say. If Jesus came in, walked in here today, he looked at you and said, there's nothing false in you, that'd be a great thing for Jesus to say about you. I'd imagine you'd be quite pleased. Others, apparently, who've done a bit of research, actually would say that others might call Nathaniel abrasive, forthright, but what Jesus saw was a reality and a, an authenticity in Nathaniel that was great. And he gave a generosity in calling out some of those things within him. But then Jesus also says, I saw you under the fig tree. Not, theologians don't know what that means, but basically what God is saying is that Jesus revealed things that only God and Nathaniel knew. Jesus said to Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. I know what's in your heart. I know what's in your life. I know what's going on in you. I've noticed you. I recognize you. I'm, I've revealed you. I've, I know your heart. And in that moment, Nathaniel responds to the God who prophetically speaks into his life. And some of us need to hear those words of Jesus again. I know you. I see you. I see you as you are. And, but here it was prophetically as God spoke into his life. And what you see right at the end of this um, last verse, if you've got your Bibles open as well, is but Jesus says, and it's a funny thing this, is that you think, wow, um, he's professed faith. Nathaniel said, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You think, job done, Christian made, um, so to speak. But then he says this little bit at the end. He says, Jesus says, you've seen nothing yet. You've understood only a portion, a bit, of who I am. Go deeper, go further with me, and there's something far greater, far more, that you've experienced or seen today. Jesus recalls the great vision from Genesis 28 of Jacob's dream. I don't know whether you know it or remember of Jacob's ladder where Jacob falls asleep and has this vision of a ladder where angels are ascending and descending between heaven and earth. And what Jesus is leading to, the angels are a sign in Scripture, what you, when you see angels, of the royal presence of God, the presence of God himself. And here Jesus is showing Nathaniel that he's not just the prophet that he might be looking for. That he wasn't just the Messiah that he imagined the Messiah was. He was far bigger than that. He was God himself, the very person, the logos, the way, the truth, and the life the one who's come to unite heaven and earth, that brings us, each one of us, to those who trust and believe, into the living presence of God. He's basically saying to Nathaniel, your vision of who I am is great, you've accounted, you profess faith, but I'm going to defeat evil once and for all through my death and resurrection. I'm going to change human hearts and human condition. I'm going to renew all of creation. It's so much more than just that. I'm far greater than you can imagine, far bigger than you have experienced. Jesus has come to bring us 
into the royal presence of the living, breathing, holy God. I am the answer. I am the person, the way of this life, where true rest, true life, and truth itself is found. And I'm the only person who can bring real purpose to your souls. So as we close and as we move to communion um, this morning, I wonder whether in the time we have before preparing to take bread and wine, prayerfully you might think about maybe there are issues of pride or contempt that you're challenged with in your life that actually you need to bring before God and confess before him. Do you need to get beyond those to get a fuller glimpse of God? Or maybe for you today, this morning, is a moment where you need to come and see. And in taking the bread and wine, be a sign of your commitment to move towards Jesus. That with all the difficulties you maybe find, with all the challenges in your life, Jesus sees you under the fig tree and wants to speak life and hope to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of Nathaniel that also shows us and teaches us so much more about our human condition, about some of the things we struggle with, our prejudice that stops us encountering you in all those different places in our lives. But Father, we thank you for the way that you drew close, revealed yourself to him, opened up for him new life, new hope, a new way that ultimately leads to life eternal with you. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes afresh to you in this season, that we would see and believe that you are the one, the Son of God. In Jesus' name, amen.